0: Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybetmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program.
1: Story in shulwear. Uh, The rabbi was speaking, and someone had fallen asleep in uh, one of the front rows. And so the the rabbi mentioned to the person sitting next to him, would you mind waking him up? To which the person responded and says, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. Um, So I want to to thank everyone uh, who's come out on... Really short notice. Uh, I only knew that I was coming in uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, I also want to thank all the sponsors, Um, in addition to the Valley Beit Midrash, the Board of Jewish Education, the JCC, the Federation, Foundation. Um, It's great to see all these different organizations uh, working together. And I'd like to thank also my parents, um, Marty and Beverly Pear, uh, in particular my father, who is really uh, motivated to. Get everyone out to come. I think he assumes, because he knows that I have, uh, you know, uh, the Yetzirah, the desire to hear myself speak. That if he organizes a speech, <laughs> I'll come to Phoenix. And unfortunately, he may be right. So, um, uh, but I want to thank him also. First of all, I think it's great that he's able to get different organizations uh, together. But I want to thank him uh, for all the work that he's put into uh, putting this together. Um, I want to talk to you tonight about three things. Uh, three. Uh, Topics that I thought to address. One is I'm going to share with you a little bit about. Rachel mentioned I'm at uh, Hebrew University, um, and uh, I'm getting a little bit involved in. sort of Israeli law in addition to American law. And so the first thing I'm going to share with you is an interesting case uh, that uh, I've been studying for the past few years uh, that hopefully you'll also find interesting. Uh, It's not just from a legal perspective, but also from a historical and maybe even philosophical perspective. It will also address uh, the topic of truth, which I think is an interesting uh, topic that comes up, uh, especially in today's world, especially here in America, when I see very often that... um, you know, there's a conversation about what is truth, and uh, Judaism has a lot to say on this topic of how to determine truth, uh, what do you say to a person when you disagree with the truth that they're sharing with you, how do you put out uh, your own truth. Uh, the second thing is I want to go a little bit more in depth and introduce to you this discipline that I'm learning now uh, at, uh, at law school called Mishpat Ivri. Mishpat Ivri is uh, how Jewish law Uh, Traditional Jewish law, meaning from the Torah, from the Talmud, uh, from the codes in the 1500s, 1600s, can be applied and help enhance um, modern Israeli secular law. Meaning I'm not talking about the yeshiva world, I'm talking about the Supreme Court, which is very often thought of as as the bastion of the secular elite in Israel, but how they're learning Torah to help them uh, help decide Uh, Israeli law, and also is taking place in the Knesset, and is also taking place in the Academy, mostly at Hebrew University, uh, and that's why I'm trying to spend some of my free time uh, there, spending time doing that. And and the third topic is, I want to sort of answer the question of what might Zionism be today? What should Zionism be today? And perhaps look at that through the prism of what I just mentioned, which is uh, Mishpativri and other uh, areas of academic study that perhaps could uh, enrich how not just Israelis, but Jews worldwide can think about, when they're trying to think about what it means to be a Zionist today, they can think about that. So to start the, the first topic, which is this particular case that I want to share with you uh, that also has a little bit to do with truth, I'll just tell you a, a quick little story. Um, my wife and I celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary uh, not too long ago. My mother-in-law sent Flowers in honor of her anniversary. She lives in New York. We live in Jerusalem, and so you know she called up an Israeli company, asked them to deliver flowers, and she wrote them a note that she would then they would then pass on to us. You know, may you have many happy more many more happy years of of marriage. Uh, The problem is as follows: that uh, she said this to the person on the other end. The other person on the other end is Israeli. They type it into the uh, thing. Now, when it's not your native language, sometimes you rely on spell check or grammar check or things along those lines. So they type in, may you have many more happy years of marriage, Uh, but the grammar check corrects it as not a statement, but rather, may you have many happy more years of marriage? Because it turns the may into a question mark. So I get this note from my, my mother-in-law, you know, we're not sure if you're going to make it or not. May you have many, happy, uh, which I was always a little suspicious about uh, my, my mother-in-law uh, in that regard. And I think we all sort of understand this idea that depending upon where you are, where you're living, if you're an American-Israeli, you may look at something, even if it's black and white, slightly differently that the background that we come to a topic, if you're a man or you're a woman, you might have a different perspective. If you're from the East Coast or the West Coast, if you grew up in this type of, everyone has a slightly different perspective about looking at the same reality. The Torah actually calls this 70 Faces of the Torah there's different ways of looking at the exact same topic and you'll come to a slightly different conclusion. And we, I think, understand that uh, instinctually, that that is how truth works on some level, that it's influenced by your own personal backgrounds. The question is, when we think about it from a rational point of view, we also believe that there are certain objective truths, right, math, right, two plus two is four. Math doesn't care how you feel about the number four. If you're looking at it from this perspective, that perspective, if you're a conservative, you're a liberal, Four is the answer. Otherwise, all of us would do much better in math, I assume, if it was up to feelings. But it's not feelings. It's something objective. And the question is, where is it between those two polar opposites? And as usual, I think the Torah has sort of an in-between, or at least a nuanced approach to truth that might be helpful uh, for all of us uh, to appreciate. Uh, And I think it's perhaps summed up best with a a midrash, a rabbinic teaching, uh, that... I find somewhat inspirational, but I also find somewhat confusing. And I want to sort of explore that midrash, that rabbinic teaching, with you a little bit tonight. So the midrash goes as follows. God wants to create the world, and there are angels representing certain values that come forth and say, wait a second, are you sure you want to do this? And the, the values of, of chesed and shalom, the values of being kind and peace, Say, yes, create human beings. They're going to be nice people. They're going to do one another. They're going to do nice things for other people. You know, they're going to cook a meal and bring it over to someone who needs some help. They're going to call a person. They're going to do very special things. And shalom, they're going to make peace with one another every so often, you know. And it's going to be okay. And truth and justice or righteousness comes forward and says, do not create the world. Do not create human beings because you know what? Men are going to be liars and they're not going to always do the right thing. So don't do it. It's a big problem. At this point in time, God, it's two to two. God says, what do I do? God takes truth and throws it to the ground. And many people who know this teaching assume it ends there, but it doesn't end there. And then it says, and truth will sprout up from the ground and grow from the ground. As if truth is, can't be objective, but you can't get rid of it either. But it's going to grow up organically from the ground. And what, the question is, what does that really mean? We understand that perhaps truth and shalom and peace sometimes are in conflict with one another. Right? If my wife were to come to me and say, do these you know, stripes make me look fat? right? <laughs> You go for shalom, right? Otherwise, it's not truth that will be thrown to the ground, but it'll be something else or someone else who will be thrown to the ground. So we understand that you have to sometimes make uh, compromises, but what does it mean that truth is going to come up from the ground organically? So that brings me to the case that I want to share with you. Actually, it's two cases. Uh, The first case is a case in 1994. It's in 'er Beersheba in Israel. There's a husband and wife who get a divorce. And they get a divorce, um, and the wife is, lo and behold, pregnant. And the husband says, there's no way that this child is my child. We have been separated. By the time the child is going to be born, we have been separated for 10 months. And I have suspicions that my wife has been unfaithful uh, during this time. The wife says, yes, it's true. In fact, I have had other relationships. But I'm pretty sure that this child, nevertheless, is my husband's. So they have an agreement. They say, you know what? When the child is born, uh, we'll take a paternity test. And uh, this, the paternity test will determine whether or not it's the father's or it's, uh, the husband or if it's someone, someone else. So the child is born. They go to the hospital and say, please do a paternity test on the baby. And at that point in time, the hospital is just about to do this, all of a sudden, the attorney general, of the state of Israel steps in and says, hospital, parents, you may not do this paternity test. Now, why can't you do a paternity test? Anyone want to? So what would be the problem? Why is the attorney general concerned for the, the child? Ah, so it's a couple of issues. I heard, first of all, it puts the parentage in doubt, which has implications. The first implication is a financial implication, right? If this child is that husband's child, so he's responsible for child support. And if you take him out of the picture, and we don't know who the father is, that child is at a financial disadvantage throughout his entire life. I also heard someone shout out the possibility of Momserut, right? What's a Momser? Don't give me specific examples. That might offend people, right? A momzer usually is translated as a bastard. It has a technical legal term. A mamzer is a child not born out of wedlock. Is sometimes often uh, confused. Right, well, the, yes, right, right. If there's a, it's, it's an, a, either a product of an adulterous or an incestuous relationship is a momzer. And there are, there is Jewish halakhic implications. There's also Israeli implications. One of them is that there is a terrible stigma. If you're a momser, that it's much more difficult in Israel to get married. There's a whole series of uh, complications. And the attorney general says, I don't want you to do this paternity test because this child is going to be hurt financially. And there's also going to be a stigma placed upon the child. And it's not fair. So don't take the test. So the parents and the hospital go to the district court and say, we think the attorney general is wrong. We think we should be able to do the test. I should know if it's my child or not. And they win in district court. The district court says it's very nice for us to want to be sensitive uh, to this child, but the purpose and role of courts is to determine truth. And we have an opportunity to pursue what truth is. Let's get the truth of the matter by doing the paternity test. The attorney general appeals to the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, there's an individual by the name of Menachem Malone who's re- since passed away. I had the honor of studying with Menachem Malone. He was a visiting professor at uh, NYU Law School. Um, and he was also in between. He was the deputy president of the Supreme Court. And then before that, he was the founder of the Institute for Mishpat Ivri um, at Hebrew University, where I'm, now, where I'm now studying. He says, wait a second. It's true that we're very interested in uh, truth. But courts have additional roles beyond that. And he introduces sort of Jewish thinking, right, religious law, Mishpat Ivri, to help explain his decision. Uh, this comes about, the reason why you need something called Mishpat Ivri is because Israel has a problem of source of law. When you make a legal decision, you have to base it on law. So in Israel, the source of all law is the Knesset, right? They pass all the laws. But there's, there's two exceptions for that. One is what happens if no law exists? Like the Knesset is new, the Knesset members usually are not working, right, they're usually not writing laws. So there's a lot of examples where no law exists. So what do you do in that instance? And secondly, what happens if there is a law passed by the Knesset, but it's against what we call the basic laws of Israel, which we don't have a constitution, but we have something called basic laws about, you know, dignity and, and uh, the right for, to have an occupation, all these different things. That's occupation in terms of getting a profession, not a political statement, okay? Um, so you you have these certain basic laws, basic rules, and the Knesset makes a decision, and the Supreme Court thinks that it's not consistent with the basic rules. So what's the source of law in those cases? Just make up whatever you want? So some people say, yes, that's exactly what the Supreme Court does. But otherwise, what they have to end up doing is they look at other sources of law. So in Israel, before there was a state of Israel, there was British law, the manda- mandate period. So you look at British law. And if British law has nothing to say, you look at Ottoman law, because that was before the British took over. So Menachem Malone comes along and says, what do you think about also looking at Jewish law? We have a 2,000-year, very rich history. Shouldn't that also be in the mix? And in fact, in 1980, a law is passed that says every judge, before they make a decision on a law, they have to look at what Jewish law has to say. They don't have to follow it, but they have to at least be aware of it. And so therefore, at this, at Hebrew University, there are people teaching secular judges about Jewish law. In the Knesset, there's an organization called SOHAR that I'm a little bit involved in that sits down and learns with members of Knesset. And they learn on... We're not talking about Shabbat. We're not talking about kosher. We're talking about, you know, uh, there's a law in Israel that was passed about you can't put a person in prison if they're a debtor. Now, by the way, debtor's prison was obviously incredibly popular. We talk about being sent to the, what is it, the clinks, right? That's because that was the name of the street in Britain where debtors were put into prison. So Israeli law comes along and says, wait a second. In Jewish law, in the Torah, it says you can't take, if there's a debtor who has only one garment, you can't take that garment away from them if that's all they're going to sleep, as the collateral. And so that's now introduced into modern Israeli law because someone was learning with a member of Knesset and they got inspired and they learned with all different members. They even learned with the Arab members of Knesset what Jewish law is about so it could influence their making of of law. So that's Mishpat Ivrim. Menachem alone says, in this case, I think that Jewish law is very concerned about the uh, assignment of the title of being a mamzer, of being a bastard. In fact, Jewish law made a number of exceptions to ensure all throughout our history, we had as few people listed as a mamzer as possible. So for example, it's really a civil case, right? If a person is uh, assigned or not this term, but we're going to treat it as if it's a murder case. Now, once it's a murder case, if you give this person that name of mamzer, you have a higher level of evidentiary requirements. You have a higher level of witnesses. You have all these additional requirements in order to not find the person guilty, but in this case, give that title of mamzerut. root. Or there's certain presumptions. Um, there's a presumption, for example, that if a husband and wife have been separated, um, and they've been separated for, let's say, even 12 months, we assume that one night the husband got drunk, the wife got drunk, And they somehow found one another somewhere, and they had relations with one another. And they say, well, what happens if the husband was overseas, like, you know, on, and it's been, you know, 10 months, 11 months? We say, "Okay, it's not very common. But who knows, you know, maybe 10 months, 11 months. And, you know, we have, we assume we, you don't go forever, right? You can't say 10 years, you could be in utero. But we do say 11 months, it's a possibility. Okay? I'm telling you what the rabbi said in the Talmud, okay? I'm not telling you that they didn't turn around and wink at one another. I'm telling you that they were motivated by a certain concern, and therefore, because they had a tremendous concern to avoid this status, they were prepared to stretch truth as far as possible. They'd even say, maybe it's never happened, but maybe it could happen. You know, they, they were prepared to, and there's other presumptions as well. For example, if you were shared information about... A adulterous relationship, and uh, the child, you, everyone is, you're not allowed to share that information. Even if you're a member of you know, a specific authority, you're not allowed to share. You're not allowed to accept this information. There's all these different presumptions that the rabbis made to make sure that we don't assign this. So Rabbi, uh, he's also a rabbi, but Justice alone says, since that's what's of the interest uh, in that time, I'm going to decide the exact same way. So everyone says that's very nice, that's very wonderful, but what about truth? right? You have an opportunity, a medical test. We're not talking about 11 months or 10 months. We have a medical test that is 98% accurate, 99% accurate. Take the test. You can find out what truth is. Isn't that the role of courts? Isn't that what you all should want is what is truth? The, I remember uh, watching the movie years ago, um, Dumb and Dumber, right? People are familiar with Dumb and Dumber. There's a scene in Dumb and Dumber where one of the dumbers, I'm not sure if he was dumb or dumber, right, Was fell in love with a beautiful, wonderful uh, uh, woman. And he asked her, Is there a chance, you know, that, what are the chances between me and you that we could actually one day come together? And she says, Listen, you know, it's one in a billion. And how does he respond to that? Do people remember the line? He says, so you're saying there's a chance, right? And that's what the Supreme Court is saying. Uh, You're saying there's a chance. Do we really want the Supreme Court of the state of Israel to be on the side of dumb and dumber? That's who they're quoting when they make this decision. We're not interested in the 99% proof of the, the medical test. So how do we explain Menachem Malone's position? So there's another court case from 1982, which I think is also incredibly fascinating. And that case is based upon something that took place in 1933, Chaim Lazaroff, right? We all know the Chaim Lazaroff streets, if you're in Tel Aviv, you know, in, in Jerusalem. Who was Chaim Lazarov? So he worked for the Jewish Agency, and one of the things he was involved in is he was a negotiator for the Jewish Agency, and one of the negotiations he was involved in is he went to Nazi Germany in 1933, yeah, well, he was trying to do a lot of different things. One of the things is uh, the the Jews were already being discriminated, and their properties were being confiscated, and he would negotiate on the state of Israel. To, they said, listen, you shouldn't be doing this, and it's terrible, but if you confiscate it, you know, maybe you should give some of that to Israel, and maybe Israel will turn a blind eye and not be so outraged by what you're doing. He also tried to get Jews out of Germany at that point in time, but he was negotiating with the Nazis, and that really upset many of the people in the right uh, in Israel during that time period. And there was, you know, protests and anger. He did a secret mission to Germany. He comes back. Um, And he goes to Jerusalem. He gives his report to the Jewish agency. And then he decides he's been away from his wife for a week. He goes to Tel Aviv with his wife. He eats at the Dan Panorama uh, Hotel right on the front of the beach. Uh, They have a wonderful dinner. They decide to go walking outside. Afterwards, they take a lovely stroll on the beach. They're interrupted by two men who ask them, excuse me, what time is it? They tell them the time. They walk further down. And then they come back, right? They walk one end of the beach. They're coming out to the other side. And at this point in time, these two men Reapproach them, they shine a flashlight into the eyes of Chaim Alazarov, and then they shoot Chaim Alazarov and they assassinate him on the beach right there in Tel Aviv. So the question is who are these two people? And shot what? Who, shot who shot him? So within a week, they find two individuals Avram Stavsky and Svi Rosenblatt. Both of them are involved in the Etzel or the revisionist movement. Uh, they both have alibis. One says he was at a political party meeting in uh, Petah Tikva. The other one says he was in Jerusalem. Um, they're brought in. They're brought in front of the, the police. There's an eyewitness, Sima, who identifies Avram Stavsky. Zvi Rosenblatt, they can't get enough information about him. They think it's him as well, but he's let off because they don't have much information. But Sima, his wife, identifies Avram Stavsky, and there's a court case. And during the course of the court case, She identifies, she says all this information. His uh, alibi is blown up. In fact, there is other information that's uncovered about him as well that suggests he was involved in the murder. However, that other information that was involved was obtained illegally. And so, therefore, there's no corroboration to the eyewitness account. In British law, if it was taking place in England, he would have been found guilty and put to death on the identification of just one eyewitness. But at that time in Israel... There was additional requirements. It wasn't Israel, but the British law for outside of British uh, homeland territory was that you needed additional information. That additional information, there was no cooperation. so Avram Stofsky gets off. And there's, you know, the whole country, there's a split, there's fighting, there's back and forth, everyone's angry, what's going on, it's terrible. Some say he's a hero, some people say he's terrible. There's three, I think, well, there's probably many, many different uh, historical uh, events that take place after this. One of them I find is uh, so descriptive of Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. The guy goes to Shul, Avram Stavsky. The Shabbos after he is uh, released, they give him an Aliyah, right? You've gotten out of prison, wonderful, great. So what happens, he goes up, he gets his Aliyah, and what happens? So half the people stand to applaud him. They're emotional. They're throwing candies to him. Great, great, great. And the other half of the audience stand up, and they take the chairs, and they throw the chairs. You know, and when I, you know, when we have a marriage in our, our community, we always put our talus on to protect us from all the candies coming, but the talus doesn't help you against the chairs, right? So everyone, there's a big fight breaking out, and shul that day is canceled, right? There's just, they can't, they can't deal with it, just too much. The second, uh, I think, somewhat historical interesting irony um, is Avram Stavsky, right, he's released, he goes and he joins the Etzel, right, one of the pre-state uh, sort of more to the right uh, military units, um, and they are trying to have their own military, and they bring in guns, they bring in their own arms to be involved in the fight against the British, eventually the fight against the Arabs, and they, uh, they rent a boat and they fill it up with arms, people are familiar with this famous boat, the Altalena. Right? The Altalena is a boat that's going to bring arms just for uh, Etzel and Stern Group and the things like that. David Ben-Gurion says there's no way that there can be any other arms, right? another military unit in the new state of Israel. He sends out one of his young commanders, Yitzhak Rabin, right, to the beach. And he says, do not let any of those arms reach the beach. I don't care what it takes. And uh, Rabin orders the boat to be bombed and missiles are fired and the boat sinks. One of the individuals who was killed on the beach about 20 feet from where Chaim Alazarov was killed in 1933 was Avram Stavsky. So he dies, Svi Rosenblatt dies shortly thereafter as well. They both died. The third interesting uh, thing I, I see we have, we have a group of lawyers and we have a group of doctors here in the, the, the audience. So another interesting thing is Chaim Alazarov when he is shot, is not taken care of in a Tel Aviv hospital. They don't think that there's enough good hospitals in Tel Aviv, so he's rushed to Jerusalem to the Bikor Holim Hospital, which is an older hospital in the center of Jerusalem. Um, The doctor, interestingly enough, who's taking care of him, um, says that Chaim Elazarov says, I was shot by an Arab, and the doctor records this. It doesn't actually come out until many years later uh, that the doctor says this. Um, But Elazarov dies anyway, and there's another doctor by the name of Danziger who says... Listen, no one, it wasn't an Arab who killed him, it wasn't Dostovsky. it was the doctors. The doctors killed him, they had terrible treatment at Bikor Cholim Hospital, they, he could have saved his life, I went through all the records, it was a terrible thing. And he's so upset by the state of the medical care in Israel, certainly there, that they didn't have a hospital in Tel Aviv that could have treated him, but also in Jerusalem, he's inspired to found a hospital in 1934. Anyone want to guess the name of the hospital? Hadassah Hospital in 1934. It started by Danziger because he felt there's not enough good care for Chaim al Okay, the 1950s now come along. The families of Chaim al make some claims about the Rosenblatt and Stovsky. You know, those, those killers, those murderers, they should have never gotten off. The families of Rosenblatt and Stovsky sued the families for Def- libel, defamation. They do the same thing in the 70s. This is going on, and it's tearing apart Israel every decade. There's a, you reopen the exact same wound of the fights that exist between the right and the left. So in 1982, Begin says, enough is enough. We're going to have a national council, right? And we're going to have the leading judges and, and thinkers, and they're going to make a determin- determination once and for all, who is the guilty party? So as soon as Begin announces this, what happens? The families of Stavsky and Rosenblatt Sue the state of Israel and say, you can't do this. You're going to, what happens if they determine that they're guilty? They've already been found innocent in a court of law. First of all, you're going to defame my parents, my uncles and the like. Second of all, you're going to destroy the whole concept of judicial truth, right? If you're questioning whether or not the Supreme Court made a right decision, isn't that questioning, isn't that undermining what the whole purpose of the Supreme Court is? You can't have an alternative an alternative fact, right? You can't have an alternative <laughs> truth out there. It's just not, it's not appropriate. And so they sue the state of Israel. The court, I mean, the case, the question comes before Judge Menachem alone, okay? And so I bring this case because how he decides that case, I think will influence his decision that we are concerned but interested in the case of the Mamzer. So he responds and says as follows. Well, first of all, before he decides, other justices. Everyone says that it's okay to have the the commission. Everyone agrees, but for different reasons. Most of the judges say it's okay because, first of all, there was an alternative truth out there. What was the alternative truth? Everyone thinks they're guilty, right? If they were in England, they would have been found guilty. So the fact is, if this commission comes along and says they're guilty, even if they are found innocent, it doesn't undermine the the court system because it's already out there anyway. Secondly, they say courts do their best to try to find the truth, but you know what? Sometimes they fail, but it's the best system we have, so if someone questions that, it's not the end of the world, we're doing our best. Judge alone says, truth is not what you think it is, okay? Truth is more nuanced than simply whether or not he did kill or didn't kill. He quotes a famous Gemara that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. There's an argument or disagreement over whether or not a certain oven in the time of the Talmud is kosher or not kosher. One rabbi says it's kosher. The other rabbi says it's not kosher. They get into a big argument. In those days, you know, you don't have to quote facts either. You just bring miracles. So one of the rabbis says, if I'm right, this river that's flowing in one direction is going to flow in the other direction. And in fact, it does that. And then one says that the Beit Midrash walls, the walls of the study hall, are going to lean. And it does that. And again, he calls upon miracle upon miracle. And they all happen. Each time the other rabbi says, wait a second, we took a vote of rabbis and we disagree with you. So we're sorry, we don't, we're not moved by this miracle or this miracle or this miracle. Finally, the rabbi who says one thing says, if I'm right, a voice from heaven will come down and say that I'm right. And in fact, the voice from heaven comes down and says he is correct. So that's a pretty good argument to have God say you're right. What does the other rabbi say? It doesn't matter. Ever since the Torah was given to humankind, the Torah is no longer in heaven. It's now for human beings to determine what it is. We took a vote, and we won. The end of the Gemara tells a wonderful story that uh, someone you know, in heaven uh, wants to know what happened when God heard that he lost uh, to the rabbis. And uh, they say that God says, ah, my children have defeated me, my children have defeated me, and God smiles, right? We all have this experience, I'm sure, too, when our kids right, defeat us, they do something, and yet you don't want them to see you smile. But they're so cute when they end up doing it, right? So God says they defeated me, did they defeat in me. And what Rabbi Justice Alone is, I think, suggesting with this Kamara, of course, is that we're trying to determine what truth is, but you know what? We can't rely on absolute truth. It's going to be the best that human beings can determine, and there has to be a certain procedure, a way of determining what that truth is. In other words, once the Torah is given, once we have to make legal decisions ourselves. We're going to do our best based on a certain procedure that hopefully produced the most accurate results. But sometimes we may get it wrong. But it doesn't matter. We have to protect it. And he goes on to say there's such a thing called factual truth. right? I know I'm getting into sort of political things. But he says there's such a thing called factual truth. And there's such a thing called legal truth. And the truth is, in this court, we're concerned with legal truth. Because we have other concerns besides just truth. For example, and we have this in American law as well, we have certain presumptions. We are concerned about certain things, so we're not always looking for truth. I'll give you a good example. If you're a doctor, right, you have certain doctor-patient privileges. You're not supposed to share tons of information about your patient, even if the law wants it, because we want people to share with their doctors information so that they can take care of them. We have lawyer-client privileges because, again, if a person doesn't feel comfortable telling his lawyer because his lawyer is going to tell the courts, he may not share information. We have spousal privileges. We want husbands and wives to speak to one another. Whether or not that's a good decision is a separate story, but we want that to take place, and so, therefore, we don't let a spouse turn in, or doesn't have to, turn in their spouse if they heard information. There's, so the court says we have certain... Or I'll give you another example. Confession. Jewish law says... We don't want or we won't accept a confession alone to determine guilt. One of those uh, presumptions that I mentioned with regards to a mom's ear. Even if the woman says she's had an adulterous relationship, we don't believe her. It's not that we're not interested in truth, but there's a concern if you accept confessions. What's the concern? Think about today and throughout the world. A guy who's suspected of terrorism or suspected of some type of crime comes forward and says, I did it. And he's got a bruise on his right eye. Right? and he has other signs of torture. We don't want people to be tortured into confessing. And so you remove the greatest incentive. We're not going to accept that confession. There has to be other corroborating evidence. Now, sometimes it means we're going to get it wrong. But that's what the courts, now I'm talking Israeli, American, others, that have said we have certain incentives, certain presumptions. It's not that we're not interested in truth, but there's a higher truth. These other things that I mentioned... We think if we have these presumptions and certain protections, that will more accurately get to the truth that we're ultimately after. And sometimes we have to sacrifice truth along the way.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the
1: learning what I call a more nuanced understanding of truth. Um, the Vilna Gaon said, for example, when a rabbi makes a decision, he has to know everything. There's a statement in the, in the Tanakh, in the Bible, that says you, when a person decides the right court case or the decision properly, emet amito, truth according to its truth, he's a partner with God in creating the world. What is emet amito, the repetition of the word emet? Well, he gets it accurate but he also understands the broader picture. He knows science, and he knows philosophy, and he knows law. He knows all these other things, and he allows that also to be part of the process in making a legal decision. Others have interpreted that to mean he understands the times in which he lives. The times may be influenced. The location may be interest. There's certain things that may influence what truth actually is. You have to have the much broader perspective. There's another rabbi, Rabbi Walby, who says if a person walks down the street, and sees a tree and swears that that tree is a tree. He is considered a liar. Now, how can he be considered a liar for saying, swearing that that tree is a tree? He says, well, a tree is so much more than a tree. A tree is, you know, an environmental asset, right? It's collecting and it's putting forth the proper gases. The tree is part of a community that provides shade. So if you swear and you simply say a tree is a tree, you haven't said what it really is. And so therefore, in a sense, you have, in fact, lied. Truth Sometimes is broader than just a narrow look. I had this experience, much, uh, much power, very powerfully explained to me. I was at a Shabbat dinner in Jerusalem, and there were a group of German students who were studying at Hebrew University across the table from me. <clears throat> and I hadn't known them, and we we're talking, we we're having a conversation, and as we're going through the Shabbat dinner, these students really—they're non-Jewish—and they're really showing their knowledge. I mean. They're talking about Torah. When we get to the blessings after the meal, they know the entire blessings. They're singing the blessings. And I say, you know, not for nothing, but how come you know so much about Judaism? And they'd say, you know, they've come to Israel a lot. They've studied Hebrew back at home. They really are very interested. And I say, so what's interested you? And so one of them, Hans, tells me the following story. He says that his grandparents lived in a small town in southern Germany. And one day they get a letter from a friend in, uh, uh, who was a pastor uh, in, in Berlin. He says, I have a Jewish couple that I have a relationship with. I want you to protect them. And this is the 1940, 41. I want you to protect them from what's taking place now in Germany. And here are their names, and they're coming your way. So they come to Hans's grandparents, and Hans' grandparents hide them in their basement. And... What makes the story very dramatic, I think, is the next-door neighbor of Hans's grandparents was the local Nazi um, coordinator. And that means they saw him every single day. You know, they're taking their trash out. They see him, everything like that. And they say to Hans, how did they, how did they hide, you know, this, this, this couple for so long, for four years? And he says, well, first of all, it was, you know, it was easy. I'm sure it wasn't easy. And he says, and second of all, they did what they had to do. They lied. Every single day, they lied. And I was thinking as he told this story, the truth is they didn't lie, right? Well, they lied, he says, I don't have, you know, Jews in our basement. But at the same time, they affirmed a very important truth, that every human being is created in the image of God, that there's a requirement to take care of the innocent, to stand up against evil. These are much deeper, more important truths. So every time they said something technically inaccurate, they're obviously affirming a much more important truth. Now, you can't use this excuse whenever you want that I'm trying to do something. <laughs> But there are times when it does make sense. And so what I like to think of as truth is not that there are alternative facts out there, but it is more sophisticated than you think. It's more complicated that you have to look at where you're standing. And you may have a slightly different perspective and what the other grander uh, goals might be. I remember when uh, we first moved to Israel. one of the things that I uh, missed most, this was 19 years ago, uh, is key, being kept up on the sports of the time. And in particular, um, I really missed you know, watching ESPN to just see the games, you know, who's in the championship and things like that. So in those days, it was very hard to get internet access and the like, but ESPN had a two-minute review of the week's most important sporting events. Um, and I remember one, one year or one week I was watching this on my computer, and the two-minute review spent a minute and a half... Reviewing the biggest sporting event of the previous week, which of course was the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest uh, on Coney Island. And you, they show it on the, the computer screen, and they had sports casters, right, standing here and here. Um, and they had a stage, and they have everyone eating. And I think it was William the Refrigerator Perry, who at the time was, you know, had just uh, retired from uh, uh, football for the Bears against, uh, Sarah will know this, the Japanese uh, champion. Kobayashi, right? Okay. So <laughs> Kobayashi is eating, and it's 12 minutes, and he's eating, and he's eating, and he's already gone past, you know, I think uh, William the Refrigerator Perry gives up at something like, you know, 47 hot dogs, you know, at minute 10, and Kobayashi beats him at 48 and 49. He's won already, but there's another minute and a half to go, and the crowd is going wild, and, you know, they're giving all the details there on the side, right? You know, how many grams of fat they're eating, how their arteries are being stopped up, and, you know, everything, all the details are there, and it's wonderful, and it's exciting, and people are applauding, and he keeps eating and he's into a minute eleven and he's going for a new record and you hear the announcers they're like, what an athlete, what an athlete. He is going further and further. And, and I remember when I first uh got married and we lived in New York and I remember In New York, the thing that's very special about weddings is the smorgasbord. You know, everyone goes, they're big, they're fancy, they have tons of different tables, and it's very hard to make sure you get to every single table. It's, you know, but it's important that you do so, um, you know, as a way of thanking the hosts of the, the wedding. So not everyone makes it to every, uh, every table. And it's, sometimes there's a lot of obstacles in your way because there's like, these people who want to talk to you, right? And you get in there, and people are being social with you, and you're seeing you know, the sushi bar over there. So I, in the very beginning of my marriage, was amazing at the smorgasbord. You know, I would be talking to someone, and I'd say, you know what, you really need to talk to this person. i put them together. i duck under them. I got to this table. I got to that table. I'm hitting every single table, you know, one right after another. And no one ever pulled my wife aside and said, wow. Look at your husband. What an athlete. You know, what an athlete. No one had ever said that. But those people who were sitting and watching that Coney Island uh, contest, they were applauding. And they were totally into it. And the reason why is because you're, if you're looking at it from that point of view, it's an exciting event. If you're looking at it 5,000 miles away through a computer screen, it's absolutely absurd. It doesn't make sense. But you know what? It depends how you're looking at the point of, at the perspective. Where are you? Are you inside? Are you inside a courtroom? Are you outside a courtroom? The truth requires to understand these varied perspectives and to be able to apply them appropriately. Why do I mention all of this? By the way, to sort just, so at least to tie the circle or close the circle. Menachem Elon takes this idea and applies it to the case of the Mamzer, And he says, right at the end of the day, There are these additional truths that we're concerned about in the state of Israel and one of them has to do making sure that kids are not stigmatized unfairly because of actions from their parents. And he says, and I have a source for that from the Torah. Actually, he says, I don't have a source from the Torah. I have a source from that from God. According to a Midrash, another rabbinic teaching, It says the Torah is oppressing the moms or it's oppressing these poor kids. No one's defending it. The rabbis are coming along and they're not defending the kids. The Torah is coming along and not defending the kids. Who's going to defend the kid? And the Midrash says, God steps forward and says, I'll take care of the kids. I'll watch over them. I'll make sure they're okay. Against, God is now fighting against the Torah. In this case, God then wins, say the rabbis. And Nachman takes that idea and says that should be part of Israeli law as well. And There's many other examples where Israeli law has an impact on Israeli secular law. And and there's a tremendous amount of wisdom. You wouldn't believe it. But uh, another another, uh, case, I won't go into the whole case, but it's coming up now. You know, I was mentioning this to my sister Rachel this afternoon. Um, Google cars are a big problem in Israel for the exact reason you wouldn't think. They drive too good. They are perfect. And what really is a problem for many Israelis to get their heads around is Google cars don't get into accidents and they obey the laws. And so what's happening is the Google cars are driving and they're driving exactly how they're doing. They're merging into traffic exactly at the speed you're supposed to merge into traffic, but Israelis don't obey the laws. So Israelis are going much faster or much slower, driving this way, and the Google cars are getting smacked left, right, and center. So you go to a computer programmer and say, you have to change it. And an ethical question comes, can you tell? the Google car to break the law because the only way he's going to be safe if he breaks the law. Another ethical question has come up. The question is Google, this happens sometimes and you have to program it in ahead of time. There's an opportunity, a choice that is made that if you pull, you know, there's someone who cuts in front of you. If you weave to the left, you're going to kill or seriously damage a young child at the crosswalk. If you weave to the right, you're going to seriously damage or kill an elderly person crossing a different crosswalk. You have to program that into ahead of time. How do you make these ethical decisions? They're not so easy, but Jewish law has a tremendous wealth on these topics. And therefore, Jewish law can help us in the modern world in this regard. It can also, I think this idea of understanding truth can help us. And I'm not just talking about Israel, but I sort of get a sense again, it's from 2,000 or 5,000 miles away. So I'm not sure if it's really what's taking place, but the experience I see is that there's a lot of disagreement. Would that be an accurate thing in in America today? And I wonder if perhaps, perhaps is there there something that we can learn that might help us communicate with one another or people who disagree with one another? Jonathan Haidt is a professor. Um, He was at University of Virginia. Now he's a visiting professor at NYU on moral psychology and the like. And he wrote a book called Righteous Mind, The Righteous Mind. And in it, he says, you know, he's a, he's a liberal, and he's trying to de- understand how is it that the liberals and the Democrats have lost these different elections. And in his study, he's coming across different understandings. He says, you know what? I began to understand my conservative friends of what they're thinking by doing this study. And one of the things he comes across is he says, morality is not one thing, and it's applicable to the same idea of truth. He says, morality, for example, there's different concerns in morality. There is something called care. Right? You care for people if they're struggling. There's something called um, uh, equality, equality of opportunity. Everyone should be treated the exact same before the law. There's something called justice. He says most liberals, for example, focus on on care and justice. If someone or harm, making sure no one gets harmed and people can do whatever they want so long as there's consent, but so long if there's concern, if there's going to cause someone harm, they can't do it. He says conservatives have that same They they care about uh, care and justice, but usually it's less so. But they have a much higher concern for other ethical values, such as loyalty. He says these are usually non-Western values. He went to India for a while, for example, and there's this tremendous focus on group cohesiveness as a way of maintaining the ethical elements of their society that people would be taken care of. And he says loyalty is an important ethical concern, much more so out of the individualized Western societies, but in the East. And then there's issues even of sanctity. Like right? that we usually think of as more of a religious concept. And he goes on and says there's about six different moral values. And all of a sudden he realized that the people he was arguing with, they're not evil people. They actually care very much about morals and ethics. It's just that what, that which animates them is a different element of the moral ethical spectrum. And he says if you can all of a sudden have a conversation with people and care that they care just as much as you about ethics, but what's motivating them is, a different taste bud, a moral taste bud, so to speak. And that's where their focus is. All of a sudden you can begin to have a conversation. The way I understand it best, there's another very important book. I use it in marriage counseling called The Five Languages of Love by an individual by the name of Chapman. He says that we all speak a different language of love. There's a language of love, for example, of words, affirmation. People who love one another and say, I love you. There are other people who are very quiet, and they do things through giving gifts. They give gifts. They receive gifts. That's how you express your love. Others for, do it, for example, through service, right? I take out the trash. I do all these things. I work late at work so I can provide for my family. That's service. Um, and he goes, there's these five different languages. And he says, so one is just spending quality time with another person. And he says, what happens sometimes when a couple get married is they don't realize this. One speaks Greek and one speaks German. You don't notice it for the first two years because you're so much in love, you don't even care what the other person is saying, right? But all of a sudden, after the first two years, you want to actually have a conversation. And all of a sudden, you start talking to one another, and you don't understand a word what they're saying. You know, the, the husband's late at work, and he's working extra hard, and he's taking on all these additional responsibilities. And what he's saying to his wife is, I love you. Look how I'm taking care of the family. And the wife is only concerned about quality time. And she says, my husband doesn't care, because he's not spending any quality time with me. Or the husband says, I'm going to give a gift. He gives a gift every single day, because that's his language of love. And the wife has a different language of love. She wants him to say, I love you, whatever it is. And they're miscommunicating one another. But it's not because they don't love each other. It's that they're speaking totally different languages. And once you understand what your language is and what the other person's language is, then you can have another conversation. You begin to learn a joint language. And I think it's the same thing when you have moral disagreements. You have to understand the person speaking a different language. What language is it? Now maybe we can actually have a conversation, still disagree, still think that Greek is better than German, but at least you have what to understand from, from one another. I think there's perhaps a valuable insight in that point in time. I just want to end by saying the th- talking for a moment about the third thing I, I mentioned, which is how can this understanding of law, mishpativri, help us understand what Zionism is all about today? You know, 100 years ago, Zionism might have been easy to understand. It meant building up a country, right? It meant perhaps purchasing land so that Jews could live on that land. It meant perhaps, you know, Going to that land, working the farms, you know, being a volunteer in the IDF. You know, there's this wonderful movie uh, out there about the Americans who went and were involved in the Air Force. You know, there were certain clear paths of what it meant to be a Zionism. And then after the state was actually established, there was also clear paths about what it meant to be a Zionist. Again, going there and being part of the process of building the country, right, contributing to the country, helping create institutions. So today, you have a state. And thank God, the state is actually doing okay. I mean, we have plenty of problems. But it's actually doing pretty well, the, the happiness index is pretty high, um, the, the, the strength is pretty high, the economy is pretty good. So what does it mean to be a Zionist today? You know, if it's just about, some of my Israeli friends will say, well, it means living in Israel. And, and I'm a big supporter of living in Israel, I wrote a book about living in Israel. But if it's only living in Israel, so what does that mean to Jews who don't live in the land of Israel? How do you be a Zionist? And if it's only living in Israel, what does it mean to Israelis? You need some type of positive mission besides simply a geographical. I happen to be born in this place. Right? It has to be more than that. So what's a positive mission of how you can be concerned about building the state of Israel? So at the end of my book on Zionism, I give this uh, vision of Yechezkel, of Ezekiel. He says that, if you remember, the resurrection of the dead is described in the valley of the dry bones. And he says as follows, what heck took place? There, is, there are bones that are scattered all throughout the valley. And then the valleys come together, the bones come together, right? They come together and literally form a skeleton. And then they're infused with flesh, right? And they're resurrected. So it's interesting to end with an insight from Ravbeni alone, who is the brother of Menachem alone. I'm sorry, the son of, of Menachem alone. So Rabbeni alone says, for many people, that's actually what the rebirth of Israel is all about. At one point in time, the people who were coming to Israel were little more than dry bones, right? They were leaving Europe, devastated, skin and bones, barely skin. And you needed to get them into one place. And then that was Israel. But the next thing you have to do is you have to build a skeleton. And what was the skeleton? Well, that's the transportation system and the medical system and, you know, an army. You have to survive. You have to have a skeleton, some type of infrastructure. But the third stage of Zionism, which is the stage of Zionism that's taking place today... um, is infusing the flesh on that skeleton, on that infrastructure, what is the school system going to look like? What is the healthcare system going to look like? What are we going to do with this state that we now have? How do we make it special? And I look around the room and I see so many people here who are such big givers and Zionists and concerned about what is that flesh going to look like? That's Zionism today. You know, it's about people saying that, you know what Israel needs to make sure that it it's infused with Jewish values, is it needs a hospital. It needs a certain type of care system for orphans. It needs, you know, in-gathering of the exiles and taking care of the, the poor. It needs all these things. And it's then concerned about creating those institutions that infuse the country with this, with this flesh. Um, I think Mishpat Ivri can play a role in that. Meaning, what does it mean to have a Jewish state? Well, it could just be demographic. But that's a very low bar if you think about it. I think Jewish values would be a wonderful thing. And if you could bring the Jewish values of the Torah about not taking the garment of a poor person and make that a law. And there's laws that have to do with rent control. And there's, there's things that I just mentioned about truth influencing the conversation. That's making sort of the Jewish state deeper in terms of its Jewish character. So that's one of the things that gets me very excited about uh, Mishpat Ivri. But... There's obviously so many ways of contributing and making Israel this type of uh, place. I just want to end um, by maybe giving two, well, not so much giving a, a plug, but uh, mentioning that if people are interested, um, in my particular vision of helping to, to sort of infuse the flesh, uh, there's copies of my book in the back uh, by my... One of my, I should, I'd like to say my assistant, but I feel like I'm probably her assistant, um, Lexi, uh, who is, is selling books. There's also copies of a brochure of my organization, Sher Hadash, uh, which is in the midst now of building a center, right in the center of uh, Jerusalem. Um, and I put that out there just so you can get an idea of one such an organization. But my real goal is to encourage you to express your Zionism in the way I've just described, in some way in finding a way to deepen the Jewish character of the state with values, with moral, morals, and ultimately with a certain type of nuanced truth um, as well. Um, I'm going to end here, but I'm very happy to open it up for questions, comments, speeches, and the like. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I have a question uh,
0: about the case uh, involving <clears throat> the possibility of the child being considered a mom's Yeah. Yeah. Disabilities, and I wonder if what uh, Judge Alon was trying to do was just push aside the whole concept of the mamzer as
1: being distasteful. Yeah. How does that reconcile with the sins of the parents? So, not being the so the rabbis do this. Oh, sure. Uh, she's just bothered by the 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 concept of the mamzer, meaning the. we have a general principle that children should not be punished for the sins of their their parents. Here seems to be a case where children are being punished for the sins of their parents. And maybe Judge Alone was trying in a sort of... Yes, Yeah, circuitous route to actually get rid of a certain law, Um, which, by the way, does happen in rabbinic thought. You know, there are times that... The rabbis don't believe there's a statement. It's a radical statement, and it's not something to be applied by everyone. It's not supposed to be applied at all times. But sometimes in order to protect the Torah, you have to, you have to correct the Torah. Now, it's a radical statement. Um, and there are times that the rabbis would, in a sense, do that bait and switch. But they always try to maintain the integrity of the law, meaning they never say, we cancel this law. But they say this is how it may have to be applied in the future. For example, a wonderful case, the Torah says every seven years you cancel debts, right? Which is an incredibly beautiful, wonderful concept, of course, unless you hold the debt. Yeah, and then it's problematic. And it actually becomes very problematic because very often a poor person needs a loan to get out of trouble. And you can imagine he goes to a wealthy individual in year six or year five and says, can I get a loan? And what does any rational, wealthy individual say? No, how could I give you a loan? In one year, the Torah's gonna to cancel my loan. So Hillel comes along and says, as a benefit for the poor, I am going to change the nature of that law. Now, he doesn't cancel it. He says, of course this is still the law. But we're going to find a way around it. Um, the classic case that's coming up very shortly is selling chametz, selling bread before Passover. So it wasn't meant originally for all of us, you know, to protect a bottle of whiskey. It was meant for the guy who owns the whiskey company, right? Because if he had to get rid of, and that's the law, the Torah says, destroy all your chametz. The guy who owns the whiskey company, if he destroys all his whiskey every year, it's not a great business model. <laughs> so the Torah comes along and says, well, you know what? If you sell your whiskey to a non-Jew, okay, you don't own it. That's okay, because you don't own it. And then... Trying to make a deal with the, the guy afterwards and buy it back. So it's a legal loophole that solves a problem. Now, sometimes you make mistakes with these lo- legal loopholes. For example, five years ago, there was a great article in the Jerusalem Post that Israel, you know, the way you, we sell our chametz in Israel is that you sell it to the local rabbi. The local rabbi sells it to the chief rabbi. The chief rabbi then sells it to a, one of the muftis, one of the imams. Uh, and there was a, the chief rabbi of Israel was selling it to this imam in Abu Ghosh. And, one of the days they had a very nice ceremony of the, the, the chief imam. Gives a speech and he says, you know, it's one of the greatest things I enjoy doing because many of you don't know this, but even though I'm a mom in this synagogue, I actually have a Jewish connection. My mother is Jewish, and so I have a very warm heart, you know, feeling for the Jewish people. Now, of course, what's the problem with that? If his mother's Jewish, he's Jewish. So we've been selling it. You know, all the chumets in Israel has been sold to a Jewish guy for these last years. So it's become a. Big, so you can have problems. Um, But there are ways of getting around this. The other thing I wanted to say specifically about the moms here. Um, You have to understand something. There is a stigma that's attached, but there's also an opportunity outside of that stigma. In other words, for example, the Gemara tells a case of giving honors. Like, let's say an aliyah. Who should get the first aliyah? So we say a Kohen should get a girl. So then there's other questions. What happens if there's a Kohen Gadol, the great Kohen, right? The most important Kohen, the high priest. isn't Well, obviously, he should get the head over the, the, the regular Kohen. And then they give the example. It says, in general, you don't like to give Mamzerim, right, too many great honors, although he gets an Aliyah also. And then the question comes up, what happens if you have the Talmud Chachem who is a Mamzer, meaning the greatest scholar of the generation who happens to also be technically a Mamzer, and you have the Kohen Gadol? And they say, the rabbi say, you give it to the Mamzer. The one who worked himself out, not because of birth, but through his own wisdom, his own dedication, he's the one who takes precedence. He doesn't lose the status of being a momser, but not all the doors that you think are shut to him should be shut remaining. And then there's one last point I want to make of the momzer, and then I'll ask, offer another question. How do you stop adultery? Incest. You know, at the moment of, is there anything as powerful as that passion? Financial incentives, you know. uh, What could possibly... There is no strong enough deterrent, right, at the moment of. If you get yourself into the trouble... David Brooks wrote a wonderful book called, I think, The Social Animal or The Social Contract, and he talks about this woman who ends up committing uh, adultery, and from her voice, she says, I didn't commit adultery at the moment in the hotel room. It happened because I put myself in the hotel room. I put myself in these... So. How do you, if you find yourself there, he says the decision was already made once I'm there. It's such a powerful force, like a raging river that's pushing you if you find yourself in such a circumstance. What could possibly stop you? There is no powerful enough deterrent except perhaps your child. That's the only thing that could break free and inspire you to do the right thing. And that's not just with this case. That's with any cases, if you begin to think about your child. So the the, the Torah understands that this is a way of perhaps saving marriages, which is the benefit for the kids, as opposed to uh, a deterrent, I mean, rather than damaging the kids. I'm not saying it's not a problem. It's very difficult to understand, and that's why the rabbis struggle just like you. I mean, the rabbis are bothered by it tremendously, and they've created all these additional conditions to make it as rare as possible. The other case that I think is a very famous case like this is what they call the rebellious son. The rebellious son is described in the Torah as a son who drinks wine, whatever he wants. He steals money from his kids, uh, all these different things. He's terrible. They say, take the kid out, and you kill him. Before he has done anything, he's done bad things. But he hasn't done anything right warranting this. And they say, kill him because what's going to lead to these problems? So the Gemara says, this kid never existed. There was never a case in all of Jewish tradition when this kid was, was killed. So why is it in the Torah? Well, it's a deterrent, right? It's there, so the kid reads it. And he's like, oh, I better, you know, like, watch out. I better be careful. It's there, and it's on the books, but the rabbis made sure that it was never applied. It's the same thing with the death penalty in the Torah, by the way. The Torah has many examples of death penalty, But you know the Talmud says, there's an argument of how often the death penalty was applied. One says that the death penalty was applied in one seven years. That was a hanging court, a very violent court. Rabbi Akiva says, you know, one in 70 would have been could And someone else comes along and says, maybe it's Rabbi Akiva actually says, I would never allow the death penalty. And then someone disagrees and says, if you never allowed it even as a possibility, you would increase the number of murderers in the land of Israel. So you have to have the deterrent, even if you then have to have the wisdom not to always apply it. Anyone other? Okay. I hope everyone has a, a, a great uh, Pesach. And yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: to two uh, questions, actually. Uh, your first remarks were God is creating the world and, and, and he's listening to Chesed and he's listening yeah. to Emma. And uh, the rest of your remarks makes me feel that these are both values, but there may be a hierarchy of values. That, that we, all of these legalisms, if you will, yeah are intended to elevate
1: chesed above of everything. It. it could be, right? I kind of call emet and and righteousness the hard uh, values, and chesed and shalom, peace and right you know, kindness the soft ones. And it seems maybe God is elevating it. I don't see it that way. What I see it is they're all equally important. But the value of truth, because it can be so powerful and destructive, has to have a different vehicle to get to people. It can't come from above like Chesed comes from God. God implanted within our consciousness a desire to be kind to one another. We sometimes fail, but it's a natural thing. If you see someone, you have empathy for them who's struggling. Truth can cause a lot of problems. You know, my, my daughter loves her favorite thing. says She loves it as soon as someone says, no offense, but. She's like, oh, I know what's coming. <laughs> right? Truth is not always very kind. And so God says, there's got to be truth in the world. You can't have people lying willy-nilly. Right? That is terrible. But we also have to have a different way in which it's going to enter into our consciousness. And therefore, it's thrown to the ground and it's going to grow up organically. It's going to grow with people debating and struggling. It's not going to be handed down. Just an aside, you know, I think about the Ten Commandments. I had this meeting with the president of Oklahoma City University. He's a non Jewish individual who knows his Bible like he can. He's writing an incredible project. He wants to do a constitution and a Bill of Rights in the form of a Talmud, meaning he wants to put the Constitution in the center and write all the commentaries along the side. Just like in the Talmud, you have Rashi and Tosafot, and he wants to get this out. And it's, it's a brilliant. I think it's a beautiful, wonderful idea. So he told me, you know how there was a, a push to have all these Ten Commandments and all these Supreme Court buildings? So you know when that started? He said that, you know, when the movie The Ten Commandments came out, as a way of marketing that movie, right, Warner Brothers, whoever did it, made a ton of Ten Commandments, and they put it all around the country as marketing that movie. And then some guy bought them all, and he thought you know, they'd be great, and he couldn't get rid of them. So he says started calling up courthouses and saying, I got a surplus of Ten Commandments. You know, I got 11 commandments. I got whatever it is. And he started giving these out and selling for inexpensive prices. That, I knew, was going to take me to a place that I don't remember where I was going. But, <laughs> but, but, but truth is not going to be handed down like the Ten Commandments, right? Truth is something that has to be nuanced. We have to understand all these legalisms that I mentioned in order to get to, we're going to get to the same goal, but it can't come so, so strong from above. In fact, we say this every time we get an aliyah. You know, when you get an aliyah to the Torah, afterwards, you say, um, let's hope that I can say this, right? Baruch Hashem, Asher Natan Torah, uh, Thank you, God, for planting within us Truth. Why planting within us truth? It's the same image of the tree being planted. It's not for giving us truth, God. You didn't give us truth through the Torah. You gave us the possibility to achieve truth that's going to be part of a process that's going to be planted within the human heart, and, but the human can't take it just like that. He has to really work on that to get to it and be careful and sensitive and understand that other people have different experiences, not different truths, but different experiences, and you have to actually work together with those other people in order to get to a joint truth together. Yeah.
0: The second question was in with the last of your three topics. Yes. Uh, I, I see in the writings of Daniel Gordon yeah. a certain despair about the uh, Zionistic identity of young Israelis. And he seems to fault the Israeli educational system of allowing young Israelis to grow up and not have an, Israel, not an Israeli identity. A Jewish. But a Zionistic
1: yeah. I think that's true. There's parts certainly about that. I'm less pessimistic um, because I meet these Israeli youth, you know, and I'll give you a, just a quick story. I mean, this either proves his point or the exact opposite. Because the people I want to talk about are actually individuals who you would say are in the religious uh, Torah community. Um, but I think it's reflective of Israeli youth in general. Um, and I see it in different ways in other Israeli youth. It's true that there's many people, because of the education system, don't feel as a deep connection to Israel as perhaps they should. Um, my daughter goes to a school, um, a do- it's a dormitory school, about 20 minutes north of Jerusalem. It's in what people in America call the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. It's a town called Ofra. And Ofra was in the news recently because they destroyed nine homes of people who were living there. And before that, in a town called Armona, which is right next door, they destroyed a number of homes. So the school that she's going to is obviously very traumatic because many of the girls at the school actually are from that community. And my daughter was telling me about, first of all, the school allowed the kids to protest until a final decision made by the Supreme Court. And they said, no longer are you allowed to protest. We close it off. Anything you do now, you have to get your parents' permission. And the people who are running the protests were the kids. They were not the parents. They were, it was kids, and I'm talking about 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds, and I'm not talking about just that they showed up there. They were on the phones every night. They were traveling around the country every night. They raised all the money, meaning this entire, whether, forget about your politics for a moment, but the, the energy and the sophistication of these kids that they were speaking in school after school after school trying to get people involved and excited and interested and concerned was, was very amazing. was very powerful. That's a political, you know, thing that's taking place. By the way, just as an aside, one of my friends, uh, my daughter's friends, you know, if you were in the protest and you were arrested because you were not leaving, they would put you on a bus and they wanted to make sure that you went far far enough away that you wouldn't come back. So one of the places, the drop-off points where they took you was a place called Naim, which is about an hour away. Um, So my daughter's friend, actually, she lives in Naim, And she couldn't get a ride home. Her mother couldn't make it. So she says, do you mind if I run to the protest just so I quickly get arrested and thrown? It helps you out. So I'll give you a different example of not a politics. Uh, there was a fire, a right, terrible fire in Israel not too long ago. Right, it Burned Haifa. So there was uh, also my daughter's um, school. There was two homes that were destroyed in this small little town called the Teret. Um, And the homes were burned down. And there was one house. Someone had moved out of a house in the community previously, like a few months earlier. And that house laid empty. And so they wanted to give the house, until they were able to rebuild, to one of the families. And the families got in a fight over who was going to get the house. And what was the fight? We shouldn't get it. You have more kids. You should get it. No, no, no. But I have a good job. We can rent. We have grandparents who live nearby. You should get it. And the kids... We're the biggest advocates for one another, saying, absolutely not, we refuse to take it. And the kids were telling the parents, we can't move into the house, it's their house, they need it. And, and if you meet Israeli children, there's many, many children who you will not be impressed by. But I must tell you, I am inspired by the, the next generation. These are not kids who are looking to get a free handout, looking to make life easy. They're looking for ways to contribute and build Israel. And it happens in the secular world as well. I gave you two examples from the religious world. But if you look at the army units, I mean, my daughter is 18. She's going to the army. Next year, she's going to yeshiva, and then she's going to the army afterwards. And I, she wanted to get into a different unit. Women in Israel have to serve two years. Um, one of the units she wants is uh, an intelligence unit, and it requires that you learn Arabic or Persian. Um, And she wanted to get in that unit, and I said, that's great, but I looked at what the conditions are. You don't go in for two years, but you have to go in for three and a half years. I said, you're going to go to a midrashah for one year, and then you're going to go to the army for three and a half years. She's thinking about becoming a doctor. I said, you're going to then start college, you know, as a 24-year-old. You're going to become a doctor, you know, to take care of yourself, as you know, are going, uh, you know, to an old age home. I mean, uh," she says, yeah, but... But the boys are doing giving three years. It's not fair for them to have to give three and me to only get away with two. And the boys who are giving three are the religious and the secular and they're volunteer. You know, we were talking about this conversation earlier with my my sister whose daughter is looking at colleges. In Israel, it's not the colleges that you go to that determine your, you know, very often social status or things like that. It's the army unit that you go into. I have no idea which college, University Bibi, went to. I mean, I could probably guess that it was maybe Hebrew University, but it could have been Tel Aviv. I don't know. I know he spent time in Harvard also, but but I know exactly what army unit he went to, and all the other previous prime ministers as well. And people are competing to have harder work. They're competing to be, you know, run more miles in their basic training. They're competing to have a harder job, and I see it across the board. No doubt there are slackers, right? But the kids that I'm meeting... These are, these are amazing kids. You know, they're raising money nonstop. I mean, it, as I say, it's, for me, it's inspirational. And, and the other thing, just to end with this, to give you at least a positive Im- image of Israeli youth, you know, my daughter was a 12-year-old daughter. She wanted to go out with friends Friday night. I said, sure. I forgot to tell her what time to be home. It's 11 o'clock. It's 12 o'clock. It's one o'clock. You know, I'm getting a little nervous. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. So, now at this point in time, I'm, you know, thinking the absolute worst. So, I begin walking the streets of Jerusalem, you know, looking for my daughter, Daria. Daria, of course. Who else would it be? (laughs) So, I go to the local park, and I walk in, and I'm nervous, 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 and I see a bunch of these Israeli kids, all 12 and 13-year-olds, and they're all singing Shabbos songs, right? I mean, what do you hear? You have a group in a circle. You know they weren't. They're singing Shabbos songs in the middle of a park at two in the morning. Now I still wanted to kill her, right? <laughs> but but it, I I did not worry about the next generation, right? I just hope that the next generation stays out to three o'clock to really give it to her what she deserves. <laughs> you have a question? Do you have a question? No. And will this be the? Oh, last one. Oh, this last one. Yes. The relationship between the modern Orthodox in Jerusalem and the ultra-Orthodox. <laughs> yeah. Listen, unfortunately, one of the downsides, if, I, if there's room to be pessimistic, um, is that there isn't as much interaction amongst different populations in Israel as there should be. Communities are separate. Neighborhoods are separate. The great equalizer in most communities is the army, meaning... The national religious, the modern orthodox will meet the secular, you integrate, you end up saving each other's lives. That has a big impact. That's a huge advantage that I would say Americans don't have. I mean, it's crazy to think, but it's an advantage to have to serve in the army because you meet all of Israeli society. There's a caveat to that all, but you meet a great number of people in Israeli society and you have real meaningful, important relationships with them at the deepest levels. And all of a sudden, some of these more superficial differences seem less important. However, because many Haredi Jews don't serve in the army, we lack that, that, that connection. The modern Orthodox have a great advantage in being a bridge because while the rest of Israeli society doesn't see the Haredi world very often, and therefore when you don't see things very often, you think the worst on both sides, um, the modern Orthodox have an advantage because they have a tremendous amount of respect for the Torah learning that's taking place in the Haredi world. We disagree. We think they should be working. We think they should be serving the army. We think it's terrible that they're not serving in the army. But we can appreciate the positive. Um, Rabbi Nachman used to say, when it means whenever you see a person, every single person you meet has at least one good quality. There's no way you can meet a person who doesn't have one good quality. And he says, you should always look at that one good quality right before you speak to that person. Even if they are a lousy, look at that one good quality. So you can always find a good quality, and that's what the modern... So there is the ability to make a connection. So I'm less concerned about the relationship of the modern Orthodox with the Haredi world, because we have fights, but we're still talking. And I think outside of that, because those who don't have the same connection, you get to the point... I had a friend uh, who went to the funeral... Uh, of a shared uncle with another individual. And they had sort of grown apart for many years. Um, And they always used to disagree about politics, not religion, but politics. And at the funeral, um, they hadn't seen each other for many, many years. And the friend said to his cousin, he says, you know, what's happened? We've become so far distant from one another, we don't even argue anymore. (laughs) And that's a problem. The modern Orthodox in the Haredi world argue vigorously but because we have this connection. And the modern Orthodox and the secular community argue vigorously because we have a shared connection in the, in the army and the developing the country and the high tech and all these different things. Um, but I, I do get a little bit worried that the Haredi and the secular are getting so far apart that they don't even argue anymore. They're just concerned about creating the state that's most consistent with their values and doing it through power without interest of finding compromise. Um, so that does concern me, but Not to end on a pessimistic note, there are many organizations that are trying to rectify that. There's a new, one of our congregants actually just became the dean of Hadassah. I mentioned Hadassah. Hadassah has opened up an engineering school in downtown Jerusalem that's only for Haredi to make sure that they will start working and getting a a way of making a living. And part of the requirements is that they serve a little bit in the army. And even though some of the rabbis are very much opposed to that, little by little, there are many individual Haredi Jews who says, I want something better for my kids. I don't want to be on you know, government handouts. And, they're, and, and it's the secular, by the way, who are paying for Hadassah Hospital, I'm not Hadassah, Hadassah Engineering School, to allow that because they also see the wisdom in that that we can keep the country together if we begin to have more of this shared uh, common sense of past and, and destiny as well. Have a great Pesach.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmadrash.org and donating to Valley Bet to support the expansion of Meaningful Jewish Education. Thank you so much for listening.